Hello, and welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Trevor Thrall. And I'm Emma Ashford. Donald Trump entered the White House brimming with confidence about his ability to negotiate better trade deals for the U.S. In 2018, as he announced he would impose tariffs on steel and aluminum, Trump crowed that when a country is losing billions of dollars on trade with virtually every country it does business with, trade wars are good and easy to win. But while Trump managed to push Canada and Mexico into reshuffling the terms of NAFTA, he is finding dealing with China to be another kettle of fish entirely. Having promised to hold China accountable for unfair trade practices, Trump has unleashed a series of tariffs and other tactics to pressure China into changing course, but so far, the upshot mostly seems to be economic uncertainty around the world. Last week, the U.S. stock market tanked as the rhetoric between the two countries heated up, and economists began worrying seriously about a recession. Joining us today to talk about where this is all headed is Matt Goodman, Senior Vice President and Senior Advisor for Asian Economics at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, where he also holds the Simon Chair in Political Economy. Matt, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right. As usual, let's start with some news. Um, and let's start over in Hong Kong where things are still popping. There was just a, a massive, either a massive or a super massive uh, public protest in the streets, uh, depending on who is counting, as the Chinese government has been cracking down. Um, Trump has sort of put his oar in a little bit, but not clear what direction he's rowing. Um, where is this going, guys? Well, I think it's a very worrisome situation. You know, the Hong Kong people are clearly uh, making a pretty strong statement of their desire to remain different uh, from mainland China. Uh, and I don't think that's going away. But on the other hand, uh, from Beijing's point of view, they can't let it uh, this go on. And uh, at some point, I think uh, the two, the unstoppable force and the immovable object are going to have to one way or another um, be resolved. Um, and I'm, I'm worrisome, about, very worried about that. You know, I think, I mean, the question really is what the U.S. role here should be, and that's what everyone's debating, but it's not really clear there is a U.S. role here. Um, you know, so any normal administration obviously would be pressuring China not to crack down, would be speaking out about it. Trump is not doing that. But once you get past the semantics, it's not clear what we could do in this situation. It's not, it's not even like Britain, where at the very least, Britain has a sort of legal obligation under international law as the guarantor of Hong Kong's sort of different freedom from China. So, I mean, what Trump is doing is not great, but I don't know what we could be doing that would be much better. Yeah. I mean, I think there are limits to what the U.S. can do. Certainly, he's not going to intervene in any sort of physical way. But, um, but you know, sending the right messages and at least not uh, giving signals that indicate that it may be okay with us if uh, Beijing moves forward um, with some sort of um, intervention here. Um, and, and also, I think linking this issue to the trade uh, dispute that I think we're going to talk about a little later, I think is also a mistake. I, I don't think these two things should be conflated. So there are things we shouldn't do, whether there are things that we you know, can and should do. Another, another question. Ah, the iron law of international politics. You can always make something worse. Yeah. Even if you can't make it better. I agree uh, with Emma. I, I would take it a step further. I, I really do think that despite the fact that physically there's really nothing the United States can do to help the protesters, that rhetorically it's actually critical for the United States and other democracies to be very angry and very vocal about uh, their opposition to China's approach here. And and the reason is because, you know, at least in my mind, and I'm a child of the Cold War, um, but I, I really think it's important for people in Hong Kong to know that the rest of the free world is with them. And I use the free world there very 
pointedly. And it's really important for people in China on the mainland to know that the entire world is watching and that we are very strongly of the opinion that being free is the right way to live. And because I, for my money, I don't see China being an unfree country for its entire existence. And so you got to keep the dream alive. So I agree. Yeah. All right. To another unfree country then, uh, North Korea um, continues its missile testing. I, it won't tell you exactly what it's testing. I, I heard some scuttlebutt that one of these was called the Dennis Rodman 2. Is that? No, sorry. Um, anyway, I, I, Trump said there's going to be no testing. It's all going to be lovely. It's wonderful. North Korea has broken off talks with South Korea. Uh, big mess still getting better. Are we winning? Another very, very difficult and very worrisome situation. Um, you know, the problem is the United States is asking North Korea to do something that North Korea isn't going to do, which is to give up this uh, this sole source of leverage. I mean, it's got nothing else. It has a, you know, no kind of economy that we'd recognize. It has no um, real civil society. It has no uh, other real leverage other than this uh, nuclear and missile related missile capability. And so telling them to give that up and and not um, offering anything in exchange, which is apparently what we're doing, and then holding occasional, um, you know, high profile, high visibility, you know, impressive um, photo ops with the, with the leaders meeting. That's not going to solve the problem. So I, I think this is this is very worrisome because um, this is a a rogue regime still, um, uh, ruled by an absolute dictator. And, um, you know, he's got nuclear weapons. You know, I was as relieved as anybody when we managed to sort of find an off-ramp from that early fire and fury stuff, when when sort of Trump agreed to meet with Kim Jong-un when they had that summit. And, you know, even though it was totally just for the pictures, it was helpful in dialing down the tensions. The problem is that because there was nothing substantive behind it, where we are right now is that the North Koreans, I mean, as I see it, this is basically them trying to get attention, right? We're offering nothing. Trump is perfectly happy with where the relationship is. He had his photo up. Kim Jong-un is not happy with that. He wants more out of this. They're not willing to give up what the Trump administration says. And so the missiles are, you know, it's like a toddler trying to get attention, right? I think you might be onto something there. I, it, 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 it's hard to see what the strategy is on North Korea's side if it isn't mostly just to get Trump's attention back on Kim Jong-un. Like that seems to be like he, he's a baby. He wants, he likes his missiles, he loves his toys, and he wants to the, the most important person in the world to pay attention to him. There's one other dimension of this that's worrisome that um, some people have focused on but want to just raise here, which is that, you know, the president has been um, fairly dismissive of what Kim Jong-un's been doing in testing short-range missiles because they can't reach the United States, but they can reach South Korea and Japan. And certainly Japan is very worried about this. And I think is concerned that um, that that our that their most important ally, the United States, is not um, saying the right things or or trying to you know prevent that kind of uh, um, contingency. And so, and and then you've got South Korea and Japan arguing over over history and um, you know export controls and so forth. And and it's just a very unsettling situation there. And I think those are things the the administration ought to be focused on trying to resolve that issue and you know really focused on these short-term missiles as well as the longer-term capability. Yeah, it's somewhat ironic that the South Koreans basically sort of led the Trump administration along thinking they would end up where they wanted. And it actually doesn't seem like that's where we are today. They may have made a really bad bet there. Yeah. 
Yeah, and then again, another case where what what people say to whom is really important, even if even if the physical sort of facts aren't necessarily there yet, you need to be making it clear to allies and adversaries alike that you know where you are, where you want to go, and and stuff like that. It's very yeah. interesting. All right, and talking about people saying things, um, we usually steer clear of domestic uh, politics for all, all the reasons you might imagine, but um, the the. The decision by Netanyahu to block representatives uh, Omar and Tlaib from visiting Israel under pressure from Donald Trump was at least enough foreign policy related. I think we have to talk about it because it's also just so darn unusual. The back and the forth thing. I mean, are there sort of any lessons from this? I mean, I, it it just seems like a really bad decision that's going to come back and bite the government of Israel in the long run. This isn't about domestic politics. This isn't about, you know, even US foreign policy. This is about the government of Israel making decisions that really don't seem to be in its long-term interests. The the fact that I was astonished to learn is that this has actually only happened once before where a country blocked a US legislator. And it was actually a, a congressman from the same district um, as Rashida Tlaib. He was an African-American legislator. He was blocked by the apartheid government of South Africa. Hmm. So when you put that in context, that's the only other time this has happened. It really seems like a, a misstep by the Israeli government. Yeah, that's bad. Moves. Yeah, very, very unusual. Um, and and again, you know, whatever you think of, um, you know, of, of the views of these uh, members, uh, they are members of the U.S. Congress and and traveling around the world and and seeing things and talking to people and interacting is good for the United States and it's good for the countries receiving these um, these visitors. And so I think that by itself is 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 something you know worrisome about this. Yeah, it, it it's I think that the U.S. Israel sort of relationship is in a weird place right now. I mean, maybe it's been a while that it's been trending this direction, but it seems like it's in a very strange place. And I'm not sure that the place was a great one to start with, I, you know, but it's definitely uh, bizarre. And I do think, you know, and I was reading some of the Israeli papers uh, earlier today, and I, I think they agree, Emma, with you that this is bad for Israel in the long run and a mistake. So uh, we'll see. All right. On to the main show, um, the trade war. Uh, we can call it that, right? It's a trade mm -hmm. war. It's officially a trade I war. I think that's okay. a safe yeah. term now. Nothing um, else we've discussed was depressing, so we yeah, can just go straight you know, for it. And 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 my draft title for the show is "The Trade War to End All Trade Wars" because it um, it doesn't seem like it's going to be easy to come back from this one. Um, but let's start with some background for those of us who don't spend all of our days studying these things. Um, why does the United States need to be tougher with China? Um, what's the argument that there was a problem that needed fixing? Because that's a fairly popular view. Right. Well, remember that um, the US and China have been engaging for over 40 years since Nixon went to China in the early 70s. And and economics has been at the sort of pointy end of the spear, as it were. It's been, a, it's been the, the lead uh, form of engagement. And we've really deepened our our two economies, massive amounts, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of trade, you know, even larger trillions of dollars of financial flows, and a, a big U.S. economic stake in China, um, and you know that uh, was a, a promise that was um, very much rewarding. I think for both sides, you know, China. Um, China had unprecedented uh, growth um, over the last few decades uh, as a result of that inter, inter engagement and our U.S. investment in the country played a big part in that and access to our market, of course. Um, and um, 
at the same time, we benefited, you know, in a macro sense, it was a huge benefit for us, everything from being able to buy cheap toys to being able to access that huge market uh, and to be able to get, you know, economic efficiencies from, you know, putting some of your production or assembly or whatever in China. So, so I think, you know, there's been a huge uh, amount of integration that's been beneficial for both sides, but two problems have emerged. One is that since China joined the WTO in the early 2000, 2001, um, they have um, been slowly and now more rapidly moving away from the path of reform and opening that they were clearly on from back from when Deng Xiaoping was the ruler of China in the late 70s. Um, and that has really made, um, I mean, it's bad for them. And, and I think at the end of the day, they're the ones that are going to pay the price for that. But for us in the near term, it's, it's making it much harder for us to, um, for American companies to succeed, for uh, people to export to China, um, for competition around the world if China's tilting the playing field in that important market. So, and there are a bunch of specific issues about, you know, subsidies, about forced technology transfer, intellectual property theft, uh, market access restrictions that are all kind of coming to a boil uh, within China. So that's sort of one big problem. The other problem is that, you know, though the the macro benefits of our engagement with China were were uh, very large, uh, distributionally, uh, it did cause some disruption. I mean, trade does that, and and that's sort of the point is to create greater efficiency. But it does cause a reallocation of resources, and in this case, the so-called China shock of China exporting uh, manufacturing products into the United States for many years, uh, you know, disrupted uh, American workers in specific industries, specific um, sectors. And that's become a, a specific geographies of the United States. And that's become a real political e economy problem here in the United States and has caused, I think, a, a, a sort of bipartisan now view that we need to be tougher on China. I think those are the really the ultimate sources of this problem. Right. Now, let me just follow on with that because now I only made it through intermediate macro in college. But my my vague understanding here is that um, protectionist economic policies are are harmful and and scary to outsiders, but in in the long run are not the best way to actually run an economy. And so it's un, unclear to me why that produces a massive fire on the part of everyone who is not China. It seems to me that you know for domestic political reasons, governments want to protect their own industries, but in the long run, they actually hurt themselves more than they hurt others. So why do we now feel the need to undo their stupid? you know, unforced error, if you will. Yeah, no, it's a good question. And I think it is something that gives some perspective of all this. I think we're all afraid that China is going to use these tools of, you know, heavy intervention in its market subsidies for state-owned champions and uh, theft of intellectual property. And again, just plain old protectionism of, of uh, restricting access to their market. Uh, and that that's going to somehow create this behemoth that is going to um, drive us out of the market. And, and in specific ways, it may do that in certain sectors and, and depending on the time. And just, you know, given the size of China, I think there are some reasons to be more concerned than than in, let's say, if this were, you know, Rwanda or, or even, you know, a, a European country doing this kind of uh, thing. But your point, to your point, in the long term, those policies uh, are not going to be, are not going to work for China. Long term, uh, they, and they they kind of understood that when they went into this reform and opening path, that they needed to move away from the kind of then really collectivist sort of Stalinist uh, economic model. And they moved a long way from that and created a real private sector. But they've got these vestiges and a lot of 
interconnections with the political system and the Communist Party of China. It's very hard to give up. But yeah, on some level, you could say in the long term, if we waited long enough, um, you know, this is probably going to be something that is um, going to slow them down, whatever we do. Um, but, you know, in the short term, it causes some pain and it causes some real political problems here. Um, so I think that's what's caused the, you know, the the surge of, of um, well, it's caused this war, yeah. as it were. You know, there's an interesting interaction there with, I think, a view that you're hearing more and more, not just from politicians, but around Washington is this kind of idea. The story is basically we opened up to China. We admitted them to the WTO. We did so with this hope that they would liberalize. And, and it's always left a little unstated whether that liberalization is political or economic, you know, because you could use the word either way. Um, but China didn't follow through on that promise. And again, I think there's this very much this conflation of how far have they come economically versus did it cause political liberalization. Um, and the story basically is right that it failed, that the opening failed, I think, which relies on that political understanding that the Chinese political system hasn't opened. Um, but I mean, what you're saying is that despite all the sort of distortions in the Chinese economy today, they've still come a long way economically on that liberalization front. Would that be right? Yeah. I mean, I think, first of all, there is a kind of revisionist view that we we made a mistake in, in bringing China into the WTO. Uh, because they were never really going to move even towards economic reform, let alone um, political change. I think that is revisionism. I think, you know, back in the period that we were negotiating uh, their WTO entry in the 1990s and going into the early 2000s, you know, there was a different leadership in China. And I think they had a different vision and they saw um, a greater move towards greater market opening, uh, more integration with the global economy, you know, even uh, being bound by some of the rules of the international system were actually good for China. And I think that changed um, for a variety of factors, but um, some structural in China, some, um, I think, just personality change. It started to change before Xi Jinping came into office in 2012-13, um, in uh, sort of the late uh, 2000s. But, um, you know, they really made a more conscious decision to move away from reform and opening at that period. And and I think that um, so it's not that we made a mistake. I think we did the right thing. I think there I also just one other sort of aspect of this. Look, I, I think it would have been naive to say that just getting them into the WTO was going to lead in a sort of straight line fashion towards Jeffersonian democracy. That was if anybody really believed that. And again, I think it's exaggerated. that Nobody really was was really advocating that. But I think there was a general presumption that, you know, that over time, a more um, a more liberal economic system would uh, promote greater uh, you know, diversity of opinion and and desire for for more political freedom. I still fundamentally believe that, and I think you're seeing it in Hong Kong to some extent. You know, that's the 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 reality there because they have a very vibrant economic um, system, and uh, you know that causes people over time to want a little bit more space um, politically. And I think I think that bet was definitely worth making at the time when you had a different kind of leadership there. And I still think it's the best long term bet. Right. So before I hit the next question, just to tie off sort of the, the threat slash opportunity, if you will, that China's current approach to running its economy presents. It, it seems to me, you know, taking uh, that, that the biggest opportunity in engaging China more aggressively really isn't necessarily to forestall or prevent 
actual harm to the U.S. economy as much as it is to recoup the opportunities lost by China not being more open. Right. Just essentially the same promise that free trade usually has, which is we would all be doing better. But because China is so big, the United States would really be doing better if China would be more open for and, and just, you know, sort of... Uh, Follow the rules, if right. you will. I was going to say that's the so, other part of it. There's more, two parts: more works. open and more um, more integrated into the rules based system, and really following the rules in letter and spirit. I mean, everybody violates of the course. rules to some extent, but but you know, China has been kind of a partly because of its size, because of the nature of its system, uh, because the WTO as constructed was not really designed for a country like China that had so much um, of that, um, well, just again, that size or that that level of state uh, involvement. Um, I think, you know, it's it's still really important for China to be, to be um, integrated into the global economy and following those rules. And that should be the long-term objective, I think, still. Uh, a lot of people think we should be moving in a different direction and decoupling or somehow isolating China. I think that's that would be not only impossible, but I think would also be not in our interest. All right. Well, that's the good pivot then to the next question, which is um, maybe then, you know, it would be good for you to summarize Trump's strategy and why this administration believes that tariffs, which more or less every economist I've ever read says are not a good tool for a country, um, why do they have such faith in tariffs to resolve the problem that China presents? Well, first of all, you asked about strategy. I think you know it's hard to divine a strategy from what the Trump um, administration is doing. There's a lot of attitude, and you know, look, attitude is not misplaced entirely here. I think we did have some problems, and it was important to step up the 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 um, you know the complaints and the the um, approach to this. And these, I think, they've identified some of the right issues about subsidization, about uh, technology transfer, and so forth. But then to use tariffs in this blanket way, violative of our international obligations, encouraging of others to use um, this tool in a blunderbuss sort of way is damaging not only to the order and not even only to obviously the consumers that ultimately pay the price, whatever the president <laughs> thinks. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's American consumers who pay uh, American tariffs. Um, you know, I think it's certainly... Um, you know, look, it's understandable on some level. There aren't that many tools of economic statecraft that you can use. And, and you know, targeted use of temporary tariffs to get somebody's attention or to get them to change their behavior, particularly if the WTO has sanctioned those tariffs because the, the country hasn't uh, addressed the practice in question. You know, there is a reasonable case for that. But this broad bus, blunderbuss approach Again, I was starting to, I guess I didn't finish my thought, which is that it's not even going to work because it's, you know, you're, you're sort of shooting at everything. Um, and that's not only expensive, but you're probably not going to hit the target of what you really want to get at, which is some of those um, specific practices that are making it very difficult for Americans to compete. Um, and I think that is the biggest problem with this, uh, this approach of tariffs. Um, so, you know, I think, I think it's not sustainable, but uh, it's clear that President Trump, he calls himself the tariff man, and I don't think he's going to slow down or stop imposing tariffs until he has to. Yeah. So, I mean, you've kind of foreshadowed your answer to the next question here, but um, Trump has um, offered, you know, he seems confident. His advocates suggest things are going swimmingly. 
China's on the run. They have more to lose than we do. The strategy's working great. Is that your take on how the trade war is going so far? I mean, what have its impacts been? Can we measure some of them already in the short run? And and sort of, it, you know, do you see a positive outcome around the corner? I wish I uh, could see one, but I, I unfortunately I don't. I, I think that clearly the administration, you know, underestimated the uh, the ability of China to withstand uh, the pressure of these tariffs. I mean, there's no question it is complicating economic ma- management in China. I think they're they were already facing a slowdown in their uh, economic growth trajectory, you know, partly inevitably just as they, as they couldn't keep growing 10% a year um, off a huge base. Uh, but, you know, they have to shift towards a more sort of services and consumer oriented economy. And that was already a tricky transition. And the tariffs piled on top of that is, you know, making it a little more difficult, but it's not going to bring down China. It's not even going to probably significantly slow down their growth. And so I think we we were overly confident that it was going to have that effect in China. And, um, you know, at the, by the same token, we underestimated the cost to us. I mean, clearly uh, this is going to have major um, impact if we follow through on tariffs across the board on all $500 billion worth of Chinese imports. You know, a lot of that effect hasn't been visible because it's been sort of spread quite thinly. So, you know, you put a tariff on steel and a nail becomes a penny or two more expensive. Um, that by itself, a consumer doesn't notice. But over time and over enough products and um, and certainly once we start putting tariffs on things that Americans buy directly, um, uh, from China, like iPods and and um, clothes and things, uh, people are going to notice, and and it's going to have a real cost. Right. I think in a recent piece in Foreign Affairs, you mentioned that uh, the Bush administration tariffs cost two hundred thousand jobs in the. Yeah, I mean that's the other way to look at it. Is you know at best a tariff is going to you know protect some jobs uh, if it if it's targeted and it you know it it helps a particular industry you know cope with um, competition or limits competition in the short term. That can, in a narrow sense, uh, create more jobs, but that's offset by the cost. Uh, to everybody else who has to subsidize basically that those new jobs, and as you said, uh, there have been these you know fairly credible estimates that the uh, tri- the Bush uh, tariffs you know cost you know those numbers you can take for you got to take with a bit of a grain of salt, but substantially more jobs um, were lost as a result of some of these costs downstream uh, from those tariffs uh, than were created. You know, I saw an estimate just this morning. I think it was J.P. Morgan was estimating the average American family, if the Trump administration follows through on all these sanctions, uh, on all the tariffs, it's probably going to be about a thousand dollars that yeah. they will spend more in the, in a year. Um, so this is that's a significant hit to consumers too. Yep. It's not just jobs. Yep, exactly. And and that's the, um, you know, I mean, you want to, you, you know, in a smart economic policy, you want to. You want to think about the interests of your producers, of your workers, of your consumers, and they're all slightly different and you have to, you know, we all benefit from growth, but, you know, they're distributionally, there can be different effects. But if you're putting all your weight on just trying to create uh, more production, especially manufactured production in the United States, that's unlikely to come back in large volume. And even if it does, it's so much more uh, technologically advanced and efficient that you're not going to create a lot of new jobs uh, for Americans. And and the cost of of that, if even if you could pull it off, is going to be huge for consumers. Well, and ironically, uh, I was reading an article by Ezwar Prasad uh, about this, and he he points out that in fighting a trade war with China, the United States risks 
uh, winding up looking more like China <laughs> as we manage our economy more and more carefully, uh, you know, in order to try to foil China, we yeah. end up becoming China. That yeah. would not be a good outcome. Yeah. Well, perhaps that's a perhaps that's a good place to pivot on to talking just about where we think this is going to go next, because I think there's a lot of uncertainty about that question. And so before we, we started taping the podcast, we were talking about you have a new project. Mm -hmm. You've actually been doing some sort of war gaming or game theory analysis to try and figure out where this kind of trade war might go. Right. Um, and so I thought maybe we could talk a little about that. Sure. Well, thank you for the um, allowing us to advertise this. It's not out yet, so I don't want to spoil the results. But at the end of September, we'll have this, uh, we'll roll out this report. We've been spending the last 18 months doing, as you said, a kind of war game exercise of a, um, how uh, trade conflict between the U.S. and China um, escalate and, you know, could potentially uh, de-escalate, um, and we played, you know, different simulations uh, with different experts, uh, Chinese and China, and uh, trade experts. And I think our conclusions are these points that we've been discussing about uh, the the risk of of under of, of not doing a proper cost benefit analysis as you go into these things, um, and if you if you underestimate your your um, ad, you know your your competitors' resolve and ability to absorb uh, economic pain, as I think has happened here, there's a tendency to escalate, and so that's that's one thing. I think also, uh, you know, one thing we're finding is that at some point, uh, as escalation uh, continues, uh, you end up getting inevitably some decoupling. Uh, the, the you know the big difference between wargaming and in uh, you know, in sort of kinetic warfare and and in economic warfare, is that you know the government has a monopoly over the use of force and over over um, uh, you know over over the military use of military power. In economics, government you know at best can pass a budget that stimulates the economy, maybe cut an interest rate, but that by itself is not going to be determinative of outcomes. There's going to be a whole bunch of different variables that are affected by by uh, um, in, in an economic um, environment. And, and you know, that's, that's what's happened here, I think, is you've gotten unintended consequences. It, it's not like you can say, okay, we're going to go into this war, we got to take that hill, and we know we're going to pay a certain cost in terms of casualties to take that hill. Um, in economics, you know, you go into these things and, you know, you just, you unleash forces that can create um, a lot of um, unintended consequences. And and I think the one here is that the U.S. and Chinese economies are going to at least partially de decouple. You know, there's a really fascinating quote um, over the last couple of days um, from a, an anonymous DOD spokesperson. Um, and it was something like, you know, we're pleased to see this in the trade war because it's actually inserting a level of friction in the U.S.-China relationship that just hadn't been there before. And so from the point of view of some people viewing this very much as a hard security relationship, they, they may actually be viewing this as a net win when even when economically it's costing us a lot. Yeah, I think, you know, there is, I mean, I'm not a security expert and I, I wouldn't deign to comment on sort of what the the right approach is on, on those issues. I mean, it, clearly there are things to be worried about with respect to our relationship with China and, and you know, the behavior that they're demonstrating in, you know, the South China Sea or, or other places that we have real security interests. So I think those are legitimate concerns on our part. But on the other hand, if we're going to apply a sort of Cold War prism to this, I think we're going to make a lot of misjudgments and mistakes because, you know, the, China is not the Soviet Union, as people often say. You know, we're so much more integrated uh, with the Chinese economy, and it's just very hard to 
uh, disentangle that in a fundamental way. There, I think there will be some decoupling. People are going to, you know, especially on technology, you already see that with Huawei and other places where we're going to pull apart some of our technological independence. You'll see businesses making decisions about you know, their supply chains that are going to change because of this. That's what I mean by partial decoupling. But fundamentally, you know, we're our, we have a huge stake in our economic relationship with China, and China's just too strong economically for us through this trade conflict to bring them down, if that is our goal, or even to contain them in some way. That's not going to happen, and it's not, what, um, it's not what the rest of the world wants either, by the way. Um, so our allies and partners and their neighbors and others will, will push back. So what would a better way look like? If you could wave your wand and have the Trump administration wake up tomorrow and pursue a different path, what would it be? Well, I've written about this that I think they're broadly speaking sort of four pillars of things or buckets of things, maybe it was buckets, four buckets of things that that we need to do kind of bound together with one fifth thing. So the, the four buckets are, you know, we need to protect the crown jewels. Uh, we need to make sure that we have, um, you know, the technology that is really critical to our uh, national security is um, is protected, and I think we use using the reform of CFIUS, the investment screening mechanism last year, uh, and you know export tightening export controls in a reasonable, sensible way. I think that is to that end, and that's useful. Um, that's the smallest bucket, in my opinion. Then there's sort of brushing back China and enforcing the rules, making sure that they are playing by the rules. And that's, you know, using the WTO, using our um, uh, other ability to to brush back diplomacy, other things, using allies to help us uh, to make sure China stays um, on, on, on track with the rules. That's the second bucket. The third is the one that is least uh, being used at the moment, which is a proactive policy to engage other uh, friends and partners to pull them into a more uh, U.S. preferred style of rulemaking and um, market opening. That's what the Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP, was about. And we haven't replaced it with anything since the president uh, abandoned it in his third day in office. And that's that's a real problem. That's something we really need to build out. And then the fourth uh, bucket is investing in ourselves. I mean, we have to spend more on infrastructure. We have to uh, invest in smart education and skills training for the 21st century economy. You know, we have to invest in R&D. And this is maybe controversial, especially at Cato. But I do think there may be a place for targeted government investments in the economy that will help uh, not become like China, God forbid. But I think there's some targeted things that are so critical to our um, future competitiveness that we may need to invest in them and, and you know, call it industrial policy. That's sort of a dirty word, but I think that's part of it. And then all of this is bound up with allies and partners. We need to, in all those buckets, we need to be working with our allies and partners to help us take on this China challenge. If we did all that, I wouldn't worry so much about, you know, a rising China or a China that's not behaving perfectly in all respects, but we're not doing most of that. That sounds like a pretty fine needle to thread. And to be honest, looking at the political candidates for 2020 doesn't seem like many are advocating that kind of targeted approach. Yeah, I'm afraid it's, I mean, you know, maybe charitably it's early in the uh, in the, in the the process and people haven't had a chance to flesh out their views. But, you know, you haven't seen a lot of new creative thinking on on these issues. Yeah, I mean, crystal balling here. I mean, I, I'm worried that support for free trade in D.C. is already on thin ice. And I who's going to pick up the ball? If Trump wins, that's not getting picked up. Uh, if a Democrat wins, I, I don't sense any of them. are. I mean, they're all dancing away from 
NAFTA and TPP and everything. I mean, yep. they love the trade war, seems like, as much as the next guy. Yep, that's the bad news, all of that. And I agree with it. Um, the good news, maybe, glass half full type of person that I am, is that, you know, polling showing that Americans are increasingly positive about trade. Um, you know, you, there was just one the other day, I think it was Wall Street Journal, NBC, showing that something like almost two thirds of Americans uh, believe that trade is good for us. Um, you know, depending on how you ask the question, people maybe are more skeptical. But I think I take comfort from the fact that Americans understand that we need to we need to have access to that famous 95 percent of the global economy that isn't in the United States. Right. We're only five percent of the global economy. Um, and so, you know, and we need to have the benefit of imports and the competition that comes with that. That's you know, that's part of the story, too. So I think if somebody can figure out how to tap into that and come up with a sensible policy that, um, you know, not only on China, but more broadly, broadly has those those buckets that I mentioned. Um, I, I think I think we can get back on a more free trade uh, path. I'm not predicting, you know, pure free trade anytime in our lifetime, but I do think we can get back on this sort of sensible path of, of more market opening and, um, you know, and rulemaking. Well, that level of optimism is is surprising and, and an excellent place to put a point on it. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today, Matt. Uh, thanks to our producer, Cecil Sherman, and to everyone for listening. To continue the conversation, our Twitter, Twitter handle is at Power Problems. And if you like the show, don't forget to leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.